The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening. Uh, last, last event coming up. And I have the great privilege and pleasure of introducing Edna Longley. And I was thinking about this and what on earth can I say about Edna Longley that everybody doesn't know already? Um, well, I could tell you about the first time I met Edna. Uh, this would have been early in 1965 uh, when I was still at school and she was already a lecturer uh, in Queens. Um, and I met herself and Michael, and I was completely starstruck. Uh, here I was in the presence of these poet intellectual uh, talking about poetry. It was just amazing. Now it takes a big effort of historical imagination for me to realize they were actually quite young at the time. <laughs> you know, I, I was 17, so they seemed to me these gods uh, above me. Uh, what else can I tell you? Um, I learned only yesterday that Edna was head girl when she was in Alexandra College here at school in Dublin, and also that she was on the first 11. Now imagine meeting Edna with a hockey stick in her hand. That's a pretty funny thought. Um, some of you I know were present at the wonderful occasion last Saturday as Eleanor and I were um, in the Great Hall in Queens uh, with the inauguration of the Longley Scholarships and the Longley uh, Room uh, in Queens. Um, a, a marvelous development in Queens that we all were really, really excited and thr thrilled about. Uh, on that occasion, uh, Michael, in his speech, still thinking of things that you may not, all of you, have heard before, uh, told about how he went in fear and trembling uh, in 1958 to, uh, to one Edna Broderick to show her this notebook for the poems, uh, very nervous about how what her reaction would be. She approved, and the rest is history. Um, <laughs> It isn't my job, though, to find new things for you that you haven't heard before. It is my job to introduce Edna Longley in, in due form. Uh, born in Cork, but educated. No, that's what it says. That is the field day anthology. Do not trust. Okay. No. <laughs> Even worse, it was Google. Dublin. <laughs> Google. Well, Google probably got it from them, but right. Dublin. Okay, Dublin. That's what I'd always assumed. And I looked up and I thought, hey, have I been wrong all this time? I always thought of you as Dublin. My father came from Cork. Cork, okay. So one generation back. I stand corrected already. I'm going to be corrected quite a lot in some more of this, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, yeah, she, Dublin, absolutely. On, on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on Christmas Eve, yes, that's something we only just learned earlier on. Um, educated here in Trinity, again, I don't have to explain that, where she met Michael and also met Derek and went on to a stellar career uh, in Queen's University Belfast. Uh, very pleased that um, we did recognize uh, here in Trinity uh, her distinction with the award uh, of an honorary degree. 
Uh, and she has had many other uh, honors and awards. Um, she is a member of uh, the fellow of the British Academy. Uh, she is an international honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Hope I've got that one right. Uh, and uh, among other positions that she's occupied uh, was that of Parnell Fellow uh, in uh, Magdalen College, uh, Cambridge, uh, a prestigious position which has also been occupied by uh, Terence Brown, uh, uh, her the respondent uh, this evening. Among the many things I don't need to tell you about, but I'm going to tell you anyway because that's my job uh, at this moment, uh, are some of her books, um, Poetry in the Wars from 1986, uh, her study of Louis McNeese uh, from uh, 1988, and, and a pamphlet that made a huge impact, I think, when it, when it came out from Kathleen to anorexia, a very, very important intervention in debates about, uh, about um, Irish literature and culture. Uh, the Living Stream from 1994, I'm not going to go on, I'm just going to cut to uh, Yeats and Modern Poetry, published by Cambridge University Press. Again, I think really an important, a monumental study of, of, the, of the subject. Um, she is, of course, well known as an editor, particularly of, of, um, of Edward Thomas, uh, who's been a, a, a favourite and important poet uh, in her career. Uh, two different editions of his poetry. Uh, she's at the moment, I think, involved in edit editing uh, his prose. Um, as an editor, she was co-founder of the uh, Irish Review, uh, which has been such an important uh, uh, development within uh, Irish uh, liter literary culture. Uh, Edna is one of the gentlest and, and, and uh, 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 kindest of people but she has always been fierce in the defense of poetry uh, uh, and her devastatingly witty one-liners about some delinquents uh, in this respect uh, have been have gone the rounds that have been quoted by all of us uh, from time to time. Uh, she is quite simply uh, one of the best readers of poetry in these islands. Uh, she is someone who knows uh, Derek Mahan's uh, work um, intimately, of course, a close uh, personal friend, and we've heard already this afternoon two of her, uh, her articles, which essays which involve uh, an interrogation of, of Mahan's work, uh, quoted, uh, who better, therefore, to give the closing keynote uh, to this conference than Edna Longley, who's now going to talk about Mahan's defense of poetry. Um, Thank you so much, Nikki, and thanks to all the marvellous organisers of this wonderful event. Um, and thank you, in a way, for bringing me back to Derek Mahon's poetry. Um, I should say, or you may already realise, that this will be a, a pre-digital uh, talk uh, without PowerPoint. Um, perhaps in tribute to Derek Mahan's prejudices, uh, or perhaps owing to my own technological incompetence in shoes. Derek Mahan's defense of poetry. 
Having to speak after so many splendid papers is to find a whole new meaning in Mahan's phrase, the anxiety of a last word. Uh, that sense that everything has been said. I'll start by quoting some of his own last words, a stanza from Alone in the Dark. Bright star, the guiding light of vanished youth, whose cold intensity reflected truth and represented an extinct ideal of perfect shining on the conditional. You shine for me tonight in my old age, still cold and bright on the unfinished page. That self-aware stanza features nouns and adjectives that recur in and for Mahan's work, light, truth, ideal, perfect, cold, trademark words with an absolutist ring. The speaker remains dedicated to a lifelong task, the poet at his post, vigilant, invoking the starry muse, still facing the blank page in a world where poetic values seem extinct. Such dedication to what the young Mahan already dubbed a dying art is also placed as hereditary. A poet's moon has risen in the poem's first section, an invocation of the star recalls Keats's last sonnet, bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art. Edward Thomas thought that in Keats's poems, we see the poets all as one company. Um, Mahan too seems to muster that company throughout his poetry, whether by quoting poets, translating poets, naming poets, naming poetry itself, or writing poems about writing poems. I think Philip Coleman said something similar yesterday. The title poem of Against the Clock proclaims a trans-historical, transnational poetic solidarity. So many exiles, so many reprobates, for whom, through their credit, it was never over. Dante and Coleridge, Hugo, Whitman, Yeats, and persecuted proud at Matapa. For me, the dedicated figure at his Kinsale writing table movingly symbolizes the very idea of poetry. I'm going to outline some qualities of Mahan's poetry that contribute to this impression. I'll also mention one or two that don't or that prove the point, my contradiction. Every true poet speaks for poetry, but Derek Mahan is among those poets who speak with special intensity, another word from, from alone in the dark, perhaps out of special necessity. He speaks in the tradition, if not the terms, of Shelley's grand affirmation. Gail McConnell argues that Mahan is skeptical of any messianic function that poetry may purport to have. It is skepticism they protest too much will be one of his defenses. Shelley's title, The Defense of Poetry, covers two intertwined concerns, 
what poetry is and what poetry does. Shelley both defends poetry as an art and represents it as an art of defense, defense against the worst that can happen to human civilization. For Shelley, the extinction of the poetical principle is connected with the progress of despotism and superstition. Mahan's exiles, reprobates, and persecuted Mataba confirm this connection. He, as has been quoted before, he ends his brief memoir, The Poetry Nonsense, by defining what poetry does as the vague instinctual resistance to a world engineered for material interests, the last ditch of sanity amid exploitation and lies. It is indeterminate, indeterminate, marginal, unimportant, and therein lies its importance. What we need is a dimmer, dreamier universe. Does that return us to Yeats and the Celtic Twilight? I'll come to them later. <coughs> Olympia and the internet contains a related definition of what poetry is. That strange, persistent art made up ideally of soul, song, and formal necessity. And I think that's, that's a wonderful encapsulation. Now, persistent. It may be a positive sign that even when most marginal, poetry continues to attract Shelley's arguers against poetry. Trinity's late great professor of Greek, W.B. Stanford, wrote a book called Enemies of Poetry. Shelley's overarching enemy is reason when it presumes to do without imagination. And similarly, Mahan tells Michael D. Higgins that only the imagination can set us right. Stanford's enemies of poetry are taken from classical writers and classical scholarship, but they typify broader hostility. In the dark are philosophers, historicists, politicians, and moralists, and every mode of factualist thinking that denies both the uniqueness and autonomy of poetry, the validity of poetic imagination, and the importance of poetic form. I must admit that Derek Mahon, when revising his poems, himself succumbs to factualism. Among the sins of the revised in Carador churchyard is that he replaced the metaphorical pang of the rest is not a publication, will not be heard, with a literal minded nod to McNeese's posthumously printed works. And for further blindness to his own metaphors, see Mahan's essay, Changing a Word. Since Stanford's day, the fallout of literary theory has probably replaced Plato or reason as poetry's most formidable intellectual antagonist. 
Certainly, the enemy has weaponized a more fundamental denial of autonomy and imagination. It has also moved farther within the gates. There are now those who profess to be poets while quote, strangling the rhetoric of lyric privilege, strangling the rhetoric of lyric privilege, as someone approvingly wrote of J.H. Prynne. With similar violence, a poetry blogger recently hoped that COVID would be the last nail in the coffin of the lyric poem. <laughs> Mahan, of course, endorsed Philippe Jacquet's defense of the pure lyric water drop against mad anti-poetic theorists. Meanwhile, in other quarters, the word poetry retains its prestige or suffers a different kind of abuse. We witness the proliferation of poetry or verse across the internet and notice that spoken word does not guarantee memorable speech. We've also witnessed the curious advent of prose, which has decided to call itself poetry. Mahan would no doubt assign much of this hubbub to what alone in the dark terms the triumphant kitsch on every side. In Olympia and the internet proposes that poetry might actually survive and thrive because pen, paper, this antique typewriter defy digitization. Certainly, he has little time for stranglers of the lyric or for fake poetry. Yet Mahan's most effective defense of poetry in both senses is his own best work, rather than his discursive updates on the opposition. The latter in prose or verse can be a scattergun as Yeats's filthy modern tide. To differ from Hugh Horton, I think that the edge of political anger and cultural critique in Mahan's work can be blunted when it reaches the poetic surface as opinion rather than as image, such as a plover flops in his oil slick. For me, Mahan's edge, including his late ecological turn, is most persuasive when most rooted in his aesthetics, um, perhaps in some kind of original opposition between Belfast and beauty. Um, uh, uh, reference, he talked about Belfast as ugly. And I, I also think Tom Walker, I, I think, meant, used the phrase aesthetic anarchism, uh, which I, I think maybe fits uh, Mahan's politics too. <clears throat> When Mahan's poems most truly speak for poetry, I think they do so from the formative ground of his aesthetic bearings in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And here I'll venture to large generalizations and leave them hanging. First, what I persist in calling Northern Irish poetry, small 
in, has been disproportionately studied on an individual rather than collective basis. This occludes its force as an aesthetic paradigm shift, not merely in the Irish context. Second, its multifarious importance to Yeats's posterity is also thereby occluded, again, not merely in the Irish context. And I notice how often we have referred to Yeats in the course of this conference. With regard to both points, um, both generalizations, Peter MacDonald's essay, Yeats, Form and Northern Irish Poetry, published 25 years ago, showed the way, I think. MacDonald says of Mahan's forms in Night Crossing that they seem to pronounce their own defensive or protective function in a manner that has its precedent in Yeats's tendency to make stanzaic form acknowledge the design that embodies defensive or protective function. Donald's attention to how poets have absorbed and moved on from the Yeatsian stanza epitomizes larger questions. What characterizes the generation of Mahan, Heaney and Longley, and particularly Mahan and Longley during their TCD apprentice years is devotion to poetry as art, as form. I recall listing in number 16, Botany Bay, to endless replayings of Wallace Stevens reading the idea of order at Key West. Mahan may subvert Stevens's idea in his own rage for order. He may decenter the poet voice and unsettle the full-throated stanza, but the poem holds its own formal ground. It also shows that the troubles did not shatter devotion to poetry as art, rather that very devotion engendered new resources. It's no accident that Heaney too should be a notable defender of poetry, although in different terms to Mahan's. In Seamus Heaney and the Adequacy of Poetry, John Dennison tests the strong claims that Heaney makes for poetry and sees him as revising and reviving Matthew Arnold's argument for its moral and cultural valency. Different styles of defending poetry reflect other artistic differences between Mahan and Heaney. Uh, to pick up on David Wheatley's paper, Mahan's review of Heaney's The Government of the Tongue finds its tone both excessively professorial as contrasted with the earlier preoccupations. And he seems surprised by the nature of Heaney's declaration of faith but in the poetic principle. Mahan's own critical tone doesn't lend itself to Arnoldian authority. 
by the same token, it may not exactly be authority or adequacy that, unlike Heaney, he wants poetry to have. Then Mahan quotes from Arnold in an image from Beckett. He gives an extraordinary yearning emphasis to Arnold's best known phrase. In that instant, I was struck by the sweetness and light, the sweetness and light. To juxtapose Arnold and Beckett is perhaps the ultimate literary historical oxymoron. It clinches the poem's irony at the expense of lasting monuments, including poetic monuments. Yet sweetness and light represents an unrealized ideal. The phrase crosses between literature and life in a way which suggests that properly understood, it might redeem the instant of human existence. Later, celebrating Paul Durkin as a hero of art, Mahan quotes Bene Shah and poetry as the interior life of requalified man, the interior life of requalified man. In fact, Mahan may actually claim more for poetry than Arnold or Hume does, perhaps because poetry is intrinsic to his quarrel with himself. I said that Mahan's defense of poetry might stem from special necessity. In his early poems, the act of writing poetry sits very close to psychic vulnerability or extremity, the reflexive will and testament of an image from Beckett, not so unlike Yeats, if in a different key. Preface to a love poem consciously circles anguish en route to the shapes of truth. The pneumonia and ague assuaged by Macnesa's poetry have inner correlatives. A shivering, gasping Van Gogh prepares to paint. Cries of despair are still audible amid the quivering silence of monk's art. Um, I think every lyric poet is marked by an individual configuration of the aesthetic and the psychological. But in certain poets, there seems to be no buffer zone between the two. Rather, the aesthetic itself, both conceptually and formally, exercises a therapeutic function unavailable elsewhere. He says to McNeese, you bring the all clear to the empty poles of spring. To put it this way, for Mahan, poetry is self-defense um, before it defends civilization against despotism and superstition, although the latter defense may depend on the former. Ideally, sweetness and light would both flood the speaker's psyche and fund civilization with all the spiritual beauty of poetry's command, the shapes of truth. 
It follows that the muse's withdrawal can leave such a poet in dire straits. Here, Mahan resembles Philip Larkin, whose mental health was bound up with his ability or inability to write poems. The young Larkin called himself the kind of artist who gives no fuck for anything except this mystery. And for that, gives every fuck there is. And I think what we heard from Sarah today uh, bore witness to that plan to Mahan. A phrase in the yellow book, the incurable ache of art, could have been Larkin's. It actually echoes his poem, Faith Healer. And the yellow book section, remembering the 90s, has an epigraph from Larkin's Ver de Societe, Beyond the Light Stand Failure and Remorse. In that poem, Larkin symbolizes poetry as the moon thinned to an air-sharpened blade, and failure and remorse result from its inaccessibility. In the previous section, Mahan speaking with irony as cured and convalescent as asked, and the lyrical madness, and reflected no dope, no Kubla Khan, no schizophrenia, no chimera. Paradox of art is that it may cure an ache by becoming one itself. In preface to a love poem, the words are aching in their own pursuit. Edward Thomas, no stranger to psychological turmoil, wrote of love poetry. It is the desire of impossible things which the poet alternately assuages and rouses again by poetry. He may attempt to state it by violence and pleasure, in action, in wandering, but though he can make it impotent, he cannot state it, or he may turn his attempt inward upon himself. In either case, he comes late or soon to poetry. Just desire to repeat, it is a desire of impossible things which the poet alternately assuages and rises again by poetry. I think there's much of Machen in that psycho-aesthetic diagnosis. In his first three collections, some unspecified malady, though unhappy love for Joe Schlesinger played a part, takes on multiple names and guises. This fits with Machen's contention that there's no precise English translation of Baudelaire's mal triste melancholy. He says, we need the idea of ailment and of sin, and we probably need it for Mahan too. In the prisoner, as in his monk poem, malady is projected onto objects, the room, the empty bottle. The malady itself, to echo Michael, is just it and hence the more comprehensively suggestive and disturbing. It is taking longer than almost anything. And by the way, I think one of Mahan's tone-deaf revisions was to change it is to the brisker it's 
extra syllable is crucial to that line. Mahan's lyric psychodrama, whether it involves a first person speaker or a persona, often an artist persona, has various denouements. Sometimes art, poetry, seems to afford no defense or cure beyond McNeese's minimal proposition. If nil is a word, you can't be nil. De Quincey seeking a panacea goes round in circles, like preface to a love poem. But Bird's Sanctuary, a happier poem concerning Jill Schlesinger, explicitly proclaims poetry's defensive and therapeutic properties. I have erected a bird sanctuary to hold the loaded world in check. This is where all my birds collect cormorant, puffin, and kittiwake, all duly enrolled. Here, monuments are less in doubt. Besides echoing Horace, Mahan rewrites Yeats's circus animals desertion. The remedial poetic strategies symbolized by birds have originated in the same rag and bone shop as Yeats's performing animals and stem from similar heart mysteries or psychic needs and need for sanctuary. But bird sanctuary builds towards Sherryan affirmation of the dream itself rather than late Yeatsian resignation to its origins in the heart. Poetry as angels of wind becomes more of a defense against the loaded world. It goes on the attack, credited with power to take over that world beyond reason, beyond rhyme, so that the heart stops. And I wonder if Mahan remembered those angels of wind when he celebrated Kieran Carson's fierce rhapsody floating above Belfast like an archangel in the sky. I think there's a link. Mahan's early poetry, I think, tests poetry by exposing it to extreme experience at the poles of our condition. To disagree somewhat with Gail O'Connell in her wonderful um, study of Northern Irish poetry and theology, um, I think despite Mahan's images of writing as violence or violation, I don't think that he ever quite tests poetry to destruction. At their positive pole, Mahan's early poems can represent poetry as not so much transcendental as transformative. When that color shines in the rainbow, there will be no more sea. Exiting Malloy is still able to hear the birds sing on over my head. There are also those images of poets as elusive survivors, less tortured by Mal, gypsies, vagabonds, their secret smile, implying hidden resources that include wit. Mahan's translation of Villon's Shorter Testament draws together some threads of the Ars Poetica implied by night crossing. Uh, it should never have been omitted from the collected poems. Discussing Bird Sanctuary years ago, and I keep coming back to my earlier criticism and finding I agree with myself, um, <laughs> 
discussing uh, Birdsang two years ago, I stressed the poem's millenarian element as of the Rainbow Revelation poem too. Um, this was in an essay called Extreme Religion of Art, which also noted Mahan's broader attraction for the plan de siècle, how he uh, renews aspects of the 1890s Yeats, such as both aesthetic purism, spiritual yearning, and twilight landscapes. That was before the Yellow Book, I wrote that. Um, I enjoy the Yellow Book, even if I find more journalism than poetry in it. But for me, that Hudson letter, it is less an advance than a retreat. Compare Nisa's talky middle stretch. I see retreat where Hugh Horton sees self-reinvention, uh, mainly because Mahan's poetry has been here before and more effectively. The Yellow Book seems more a guide to the past than a path to the future. After all, the poet speaker of remembering the 90s calls himself a decadent who lived to tell the story. Years earlier, Mahan had read The Symbolists, French, Dalton & Co, Yeats, and absorbed them into the fabric of his early poems. This was not an encounter that took place in the pastiche paradise of the postmodern or as intertextual bricolage, but deep in Mahan's artistic formation. Long before his, his Fitzwilliam Square attic became ironical ivory tower, or before he remixed the Celtic Twilight as the Celtic Tyler, Celtic Tiger rampaged, Mahan had understood the ascetes, cold dream of a place out of time, a palace of porcelain. Aestheticism and symbolism are built into foundations of Mahan's poetry, absorbed both directly and through Yeats and Stevens. In his essay, Yeats and the Lights of Dublin, a defense of poetry as well as Yeats, he emphasizes that Yeats incorporated aspects of most known traditions into the imaginative structure. Mahan himself seemed to have incorporated into his own structures, not only the sonorous octaves of sailing to Byzantium, but also the Yeats of outworn heart in a time outworn. And that's a further parallel with Larkin in the reception of Yeats. Um, Mahan's defense of poetry then may have been doubly fortified by Yeats's early and late dedication to the Muses' sterner laws. For instance, his psychodrama, his lyrical madness, resets the link between inner disturbance and lyric intensity which for Yeats characterizes the tragic generation, especially Dyson. Poetic desire, as defined by Edward Thomas, belongs to this psychological vein. Mahan's autumnal leaves is not so far from the mood of Yeats's autumn as over the long leaves that love us. Somewhere there is an afterlife of dead leaves, a stadium filled 
with an infinite rustling and sighing, a literary afterlife too. Perhaps one reason for the extraordinary richness of a disused shed in County Wexford is that it spans a near century of literary history, as well as of Irish and European history. I'm thinking of the second stanza. Deep in the grounds of a burnt out hotel, among the bathtubs and the wash basins, a thousand mushrooms crowd to a keyhole. This is the one star in their firmament, or frames a star within a star. What should they do there but desire? The mushrooms inhabit a dim twilight zone, which resembles other locations of the psyche in Mahan's poems, sequestered rooms of Edward Munch and the prisoner, the difficult derelict places listed in entropy. And as years later, in Alone in the Dark, a star within a star suggests poetry. While I listen to miscellaneous noises off, the wordless, feverish forms apparently await a saving articulation, poetry again, that will satisfy their all-encompassing desire. This is so whether we see them as aspiring to a psychological reconciliation of id and ego, or a historical redemption of lost people, or both. Um, yet if some elements of this you shared hark back to early Yeats and the feverish forms of an outworn poetry, the poem simultaneously reorchestrates Yeats's big stanza as it does his mature reconciliation of symbolism with history. A disused shed has been subjected to some rather crude readings of its relation to the troubles. Such readings diminish the scope of Mahan's vision of history as trauma, a vision enabled or mediated by personal trauma. I think that's the key. Um, the poem anatomizes nightmare, summed up as darkness and pain, which it seeks a means of awakening, perhaps by way of poetry. It may also defend poetry as possible or necessary after Treblinka, after Auschwitz. The poem begins, even now there are places where a thought might grow, even now. Here, Mahan indeed subjects poetry to its severest stress test. Yet I feel that Gale pushes too far the idea that a disused shed evidences the necessary failure of poetic mediumship and is apocalyptic without revelation. I feel that for all its self caveats, a disused shed would not be so powerful if that were so, where it is powerful. To quote Peter MacDonald again, the poem's form both protects and embodies a good faith, which announces and enacts its own precariousness and frailty. As itself a thought that grows, a disused shed seems 
an oblique Ars Poetica, in part for a new time of civil war in Ireland. Indeed, this left field emblem of adversity laid the ground for images of post-traumatic stress in leisure poetry from the North. And, and here I agree with, with, with Heather, but I, I think the uh, dark images continue. Uh, there, there are no happy endings, really, in poems. The form of a disused shed has been much analyzed and Mahan's formal brilliance has received due and new uh, attention in our proceedings. It's clear that he stayed true to line and stanza, to rhyme, perhaps to Yeats's mantra, even what I alter must seem traditional. This is remaining true to poetry, I think. Although I remain surprised that he dropped the capital letter, which marks each line's integrity within a poem's larger orchestration. I don't know why he did that. I'm sure that everyone here has many Machen lines by heart, some as mighty as Marlowe's, the ceiling cradled in a radiant spoon, the steam rising wherever the edge may be. Such lines exemplify what poetry is and does. Despite arguments we've heard contrary, I still feel that Mahan, after the hunt by night, could take the line of least resistance. Certain stanzas, some stanzas, may look the same shape, but don't sound the same shape. They fall short as soul, song, and formal necessity. I believe we devalue Mahan's best poems and sabotage his defense of poetry if we indulge his weaker performances. And that also applies to what we seem to have agreed to call his late style. I'll now bring up his revisions for the last time in this conference. They are not a peripheral issue. First, I don't think they can be justified by invoking textual instability as a virtue in this regard, or any regard. Uh, second, I don't see them as ultimately driven by guilty Protestant self-erasure. For me, Mahan is chiefly guilty of artistic self-harm, futile tinkering as a substitute for writing new poems. It seems more a question of psychology and the postmodernism or Calvinism. It has a lot to do with failure and remorse. Mahan's revisions often appear to elide what he may have deemed undue self-exposure. That is in the unconscious traffic between art and psyche, which engenders a poem. Michael Allen pinpointed this in his fine essay, Rhythm and Revision in Machen. If you don't know it, read it. Rhythm and Revision in Machen's Poetic Development. Analyzing the revisions of Day Trip to Donegal, for instance, Alan finds that they render it a rhythmically smoother, more public poem. The speaker, he says, assumes a steady and stable 
this curse of identity. And there is now no psychological justification for his extravagant empathy with the mutilated fish. But perhaps a more mature poet, especially one so afflicted by thunderstorms, inevitably develops or seeks a steady and stable discursive identity, replacing psychodrama, essentially. Or perhaps extreme lyric intensity must burn itself out like Marilyn. The Hunt by Night already manifests a steadier speaker, less psychodramatic turmoil. But Mahan's revisions, in my view, seem not to recognize his core poetic being. He translates himself into prose. I'm going to end with the restored visionary gleam in Mahan's last collections and with two structural means whereby from first to last, he underscores the power of poetry, reflexivity in general, and at Francis, a subset of reflexivity in particular. These rhetorical modes, they are rhetorical modes, seem integral to any poetry that emphasizes its own art as Latin's poetry does. Their modern sources, of course, lie in aestheticism and Gates exemplifies this. Earlier, I quoted Peter MacDonald's observation that like Yeats, Mahan makes Vandaic form acknowledge the design it embodies. Ephrasis is another means whereby a poem acknowledges the design it embodies, perhaps a more holistic means, since it implies usually an ars poetica. Ephrasis can be overdone these days as a routine creative writing exercise. And the poets most genuinely given to it, um, um, the ekphrast and ekphrastic impulse seems to weave in and out of their imaginative tra trajectory rather than always be triggered by specific artworks. And again, Stevens uh, is an example of that. Uh, for example, in a disused shed, the keyhole frames a star within a star. Discussing recalling Aaron, Hugh Horton notes the reflexive implications of the ideas of placing, printing, and measuring around which the poem is built. Ekphrasis also plays a part here. Um, Aaron is approached as an art object. Um, this dream of limestone in sea light has a sculptural aspect which binds print to vision, text to image. Mahan's revised title ignores the poem's concern, reinforced by Ekphrasis, with how indelibly poetry recalled. Ekphrasis is a way of emphasizing uh, poetry as vision, I think. Of course, the interchange between print and vision in Mahan's poetry took on fascinating new forms in his work after he met Sarah Armonger. I'm reminded of how Virginia Woolf identified with her painter sister 
by standing at her desk to write. Mahan's poem, Working Conditions, begins, a beloved presence, the right kind of light, preferably from an eastward facing window. The poet figure framed in the window at his writing table brings me back to where I began with my impression of Mahana's embodying the very idea of poetry. Though I end with a, a new sense of how, how posed as well as poised this figure is. Um, it's an ekphrastic self-portrait perhaps. The poet here also seems uncannily akin to Coleridge's self-description in a sentence which Mahan quotes and which might define his own symbolic art with its reflexive lights, shadows, windows, horizons, artscapes. Coleridge writes, in looking at the objects of nature, why I am thinking, thinking as at yonder moon dim glimmering through the dewy window pane, I seem rather to be seeking as to were asking for a symbolical language for something within me that already and forever exists and observing anything new. My favorite poem in Washing Up unites the visual and verbal by way of the characters employed by its Chinese poet persona. I think it's the, the best poem in Washing Up. Uh, it's called Diary Extract Late Time. And it begins, autumn, we do our best creative work. Perhaps since that's when we rededicate our brushes to the fine art of poetry. This poem diary in progress, a miniature autumn journal, interweaves and internalizes pastoral and pestilence, moon glow and water curtains, jottings on birds and animals, poetry and art criticism, memories and forebodings of war. I see diary extract as in some sense Mahan's last word. The last stanza defends poetry and other arts before ending with an ominously unfinished sentence. The ancient wisdom never quite dispersed shines like a rainbow in our prose and verse, dance and philosophy. I think that the revelation of Derek Mahan's poetry shines there too. is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.